Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about how more and more alts sponsors are entering the markets with more and more products, and what are those best practices for alternative sponsors. And joining me today, I have Andrew Daup, who's Securities Counsel at Kegler, Brown Hill, and Ritter. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And, you know, just just a note to our listeners and viewers, you know, this episode, it's a little bit different. It's targeted more towards industry professionals, towards sponsors and issuers. Uh, but I think it's really it's, it's a good thing for investors and advisors to kind of understand how these products work from the sponsor's point of view to get a little bit more in-depth, uh, you know, understanding of how these products work and some of the liabilities, some of the challenges, some of the best practices so, Andrew, why don't we begin by discussing your experience uh, in this field? Can you tell us a little bit about your career? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, so I work at a full-service law firm uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my practice area is in private securities. And so what that means is I work with uh, sponsors, uh, fund managers, um, entrepreneurs, developers, in organizing what's referred to as an exempt securities offering. You know, typically, if an entrepreneur has his business plan, um, then they're looking for investment partners to help them capitalize a business plan. And so, uh, and so we do that by organizing the offering, um, issuing securities uh, to a class of passive investors that are looking for yield. Uh, so I've been in this practice now for about uh, eight years. Um, this isn't my first career, though. Uh, my first career was uh, in, uh, in the military. Um, after graduation, I joined the Air Force. Um, was active duty uh, for about seven years, um, decided that I was uh, getting tired of deploying all the time. So when it came time to uh, plant some roots uh, for my family, uh, we decided to move home uh, here to Columbus. Uh, fortunately, I had the GI Bill uh, to pay for law school. So I went to law school at Ohio State and um, uh, started working um, at Kegler Brown. So when it's uh, football season, are you rooting for the Buckeyes or Air Force or little? <laughs> uh, you know, the primary reason why I wanted to plant roots in Columbus was so that I could raise my children to be Buckeyes. Right on. Yeah, I, I have family uh, from Columbus. I actually grew up in Columbus. So personally, not a huge Buckeyes fan, but I got to have a lot of respect for that um, that fan base. Certainly. Certainly don't want the show to make a, an enemy of that fan base because that Buckeye Nation, boy, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a big fan base. I'm over here in West Michigan, so we also have, you know, University of Michigan's big thing around here. Um, and Big Ten football, man, it is just a machine. It's a juggernaut. Um, yeah, well, look, man, we got a big matchup coming up first game of this season, OSU and Notre Dame. Yeah, you know, uh, I got to say, as an Irish fan, I'm going to fold even before we begin that conversation. Because <laughs> we're perennially overrated and overranked. But, uh, you know, of course, I got to cheer 
cheer for my team. Um, so back to alternatives. We'll, we'll put football aside for a minute. Uh, you've been in this space for eight years. You've been working with clients, with sponsors. Uh, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in those eight years? I mean, eight years is not that long of a time, but but really it was right around a decade ago that we saw the launch of 506Cs. Uh, we also you know, had the Opportunity Zones program launch in that time frame. So what would you say are, are the biggest changes you've seen since you started practicing in this area? Yeah, you know, I would say... You know, the general theme that I've seen is that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has taken steps in recent years to facilitate capital formation in the middle market by lowering barriers of entry to both entrepreneurs and private investors alike. And so they've done that in a few different ways. Um, one of them uh, was by modifying the rules on how an issue issuer can offer and sell uh, their securities um, you know, for about a generation, uh, these private investment opportunities uh, could only be offered uh, and sold to people with whom you already had a pre-existing substantive relationship, uh, which meant advertising and, and marketing were prohibited. Um, that rule changed in around 2013, 2014, um, which lifted that restriction. Quick question. When that, yeah, rule, when that rule changed, was that due to legislation or... Uh, was that at the SEC itself, they decided to, you know, rewrite some of those regulations? That was uh, congressional legislation, the, the Jobs Act. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so um, that change, uh, it lifted uh, the rule uh, that prohibited uh, sponsors and issuers from marketing and advertising their offering. Uh, so issuers can do that now. Uh, they can market and advertise to the public, uh, provided that they satisfy one condition, uh, and that's to take reasonable steps to verify that purchasers are what's referred to as accredited investors, um, and, and we can get into what that means. Uh, but again, you know, the goal being um, increased participation uh, by, uh, by investors. Um, there have been a number of changes since then. Uh, most recently in 2020, um, the SEC amended a rule to uh, what categories are included as uh, an accredited investor. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time, you're not going to be excluded because you don't make enough money on an annual basis or your net worth isn't high enough. Uh, now you can be an accredited investor if you have the right qualifications. So for example, if you have you know, certain licenses in the financial industry, um, you can be an accredited investor without satisfying either that annual income or net worth threshold. And so what's the theory behind that? Just the idea that, you know, you'll be more sophisticated as an investor because of those licenses versus just having a particular net worth. Cause I mean, I have to say, I don't know that net worth is really that great of a um, litmus test for an investor's sophistication necessarily, regardless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think most people would agree. Um, you know, the, the commentary, about that rule is it was the best uh, you know the SEC could do at the time. Of course, you know the the annual income and net worth uh, thresholds have not been indexed for inflation, so they were quite high um, at the time that those rules were promulgated. Um, but you know, to your point, um, you can make a poor investment decision, notwithstanding your annual income or net worth, 
from the SEC's perspective, the logic was, well, you know, if they hit either of those two thresholds, then they have enough, uh, they can bear the risk of total loss, which, you know, again, isn't a great standard, um, uh, especially, uh, you know, for uh, sophisticated investors, folks that may not qualify for either of those standards, but are still quite capable of evaluating the merits and risks of an alternative investment. Okay. So since you've entered the field, uh, have most of your clients been issuing 506B offerings or 506C offerings? Has that, has that uh, mix changed over time? Um, you know, I would say, you know, it's about 50, 50. Um, you know, there are a pool of clients who already have a, you know, pre-existing, um, well-established network of prospective investors. Mm-hmm. And so they don't need to market and advertise the offering to the general public because they don't really need to verify um, that those investors are accredited since they have those relationships and have had them for some time. Uh, but, you know, then again, you know, more and more um, beginning to see the value of issuers organizing an offering and reliance on this rule 506 C exemption, especially since COVID, you know, people stopped going out and meeting each other face to face and, you know, we're in the information age now. So, um, you know, issuers have had success in, in casting the widest net possible, whether it's by establishing an online presence or, you know, conducting a social media campaign, um, you know, that information technology is, is building bridges between sponsors and investors. Okay, that's interesting. So you mentioned it was about 50-50. And is that mix stayed constant? Or is it is it now leaning more in the direction of you're seeing more and more 506C offerings? Are those now outnumbering the 506B offerings? Yeah, it's definitely trending that way, Andy. I mean, especially since COVID. Um, you know, I don't that's know so, if I would have had so the same observation I, prior to that. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that, that that would necessarily be the catalyst. I mean, is that, is it, is it like the perception that, you know, there's, there's fewer like lunch meetings between an advisor and clients or it just more, uh, investors are at home on the internet, you know, Googling different offerings or like, why, why would that be such a catalyst? I mean, I know no, we're kind of theorizing here, but give me your best guesses. Yeah, I think those are all contributing factors. You know, I also think that social media um, has a, a, a huge influence on what people think, uh, you know, about things and about the world and, and about, you know, prospective alternative investment deals. So you're saying social media has contributed at least one good thing to the world um, in the space. I'm, I'm kidding. Um so let's talk about it depends on the sponsor, I suppose. <laughs> I want to move on to the kind of the meat of today's episode. So we want to talk about best practices for alt sponsors. Um, you know, but I, I like Charlie Munger's maxim invert, always invert. So when, when I'm thinking about a topic, let's start with the inversion. What's a major pitfall or mistake that you see? alternative sponsors make that, you know, it's, it's pretty common and it's something that they could avoid if they only knew about it. Yeah. You know, this is kind of an, an amateur mistake. Um, but you know, for first time issuers, it is, you know, not appreciating the risk of securities liability. Mm. Um, and so just for general background, debt and passive equity interests are, are regulated as securities by federal and state governments. 
And, you know, the reason why clients care is because if you don't do it correctly, then you're not only going to be subject to civil liability, but you can also be subject to criminal prosecution. And so securities liability is pretty onerous, but the good news is that there is a well-established pathway to organizing and offering um, securities uh, to prospective investors. And that's uh, that pathway is, is what you specialize in. So, so let's get to best practices now. Um, let's say I'm, I'm a new alt sponsor, not necessarily new to alternatives or new to real estate, but this is maybe going to be my first issuance and I want to you know, raise 20 or 30 million in capital uh, to pursue my project and my fund. So what are those keys and best practices that, you know, I need to keep in mind as, um, you know, preparing to uh, launch a new offering? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you and I were to have a strategy call on how to organize uh, and conduct your offering, Andy, I'd probably ask you um, a few questions uh, so that I could assess your business objectives um, to properly scope uh, the offering and then recommend um, an exemption that would best position you to achieve those objectives. Um, aside from that, um, it would be, you, you know, where I can tell you where we would probably end up is, you know, if you, uh, if your intent was to raise, um, you know, your fund from investors, regardless of what state they reside in, mm-hmm. then, you know, then I can tell you, you know, right away that we're probably going to look at, uh, regulation D, uh, mm-hmm. which is an exemption that enables issuers to raise as much money as they need to capitalize their business plan uh, from as many as investors uh, that are willing to participate. Uh, the primary benefit of a Reg D exemption is that it preempts state securities registration requirements. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned at the beginning, securities laws are regulated by both federal and state governments. The Reg D exemption preempts um, state registration requirements, and so um, what that means is you can raise, um, you know, you can raise cash from investors regardless of which state they reside in, uh, provided you make a what's called a blue sky notice filing in that state. Okay. Um, so that's probably the first um, line of questions that I would uh, I would want to learn from you is, you know, where where do you intend to raise your cash from? What are these now, all going to be? Would there be like an exception there? Like I'm, I'm thinking of like California. So if I'm a sponsor in, in California, you know, due to the the tax law in California, you know, I, I might be thinking, well, shoot, maybe my entire investor capital base will be located in California. W- would there ever be a circumstance where you would advise a client uh, to, to file outside of, of Reg, Reg D? Um Reg, yeah, reg, absolutely. Reg D. Reg D. Reg D yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, well, let's use Ohio uh, as our example. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so if you were to, uh, you know, if you wanted to raise a round of equity from family and friends, all residing in the state of Ohio, in, in other words, no, there was no element of, you know, interstate um, uh, offering um, and selling of securities, we could rely on, on a separate exemption uh, because we wouldn't need to preempt Ohio State securities law. Uh, under Ohio State securities law, there's an exemption from registration available if your offering is limited to 10 investors or less. 
I see. Um, so in that case, you know, we wouldn't need to rely on the Reg D exemption. You know, we can rely on this Ohio State securities exemption uh, coupled with a, you know, federal um, uh, called a statutory private placement exemption under Section 4A2 mm-hmm. of the Securities Act, um, which is uh, which is not the Reg D safe harbor um, that you would have otherwise. But, you know, again, here, you know, given the facts that you're limiting your offering and you intend to raise from no more than 10 Ohio residents, you know, I might instead recommend, uh, you know, this other exemption. Right. So you back to my sort of prototypical example, if, if I'm a, a sponsor looking to raise 20 or, or 30 million, obviously like in Ohio securities law, I don't want to limit myself to only having 10 potential investors. So reg D sounds like that's just the default choice. And you know, 90, 90% odd cases. Um, okay. So, so you've pointed me in the direction of reg D and then what are, what are the options then within reg D you know, is that, is it reg D whether it's 506 C or 506 B or heck even a crowdfunded offering? Are we going to go there? I mean, what, what are my options? What's on the menu here? Yeah. Yeah. It depends. Uh, so if, if we're in reg D world, uh, there are two rules that you could um, position yourself for, depending on what your goals are. And, and you mentioned them already. These are referred to as Rule 506B and, and Rule 506C. So Rule 506B is uh, what we refer to as a private placement exemption. And, um, you know, I would say about 95% of private money is raised in reliance on Reg D. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, most of that on 506B because it's been around for so much longer than than 506C, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, but in order to organize your offering and reliance on Rule 506B, there are really four things you need to do. You need to satisfy in order to rely on that exemption. The first one is that you can't be what's called a bad actor. So you and uh, you know any other of your co-founders that organize an issuer or a fund. Uh, you know, really anyone who's involved in the offering must have a clean securities record. Um, and so an issuer with a history of bad actions involving violations of the securities laws is generally going to be disqualified from relying on the private placement exemption. Okay. Um, so, you know, not everyone is aware of that um, at the outset when they come in and talk to me. So just, you know, as a matter of course, uh, you know, our practice is to run a bad actor disqualification check on, on our clients so that we know whether or not this is something they could even pursue. Uh, so um, what if, uh, what if one of your business partners was Nicholas Cage? Nicholas Cage. Uh, uh, he is actor. a great actor <laughs> actually, yeah. uh, with several great movies. Um, so you would be fortuitous. Right. Um, <laughs> man. I got five um, kids, Andrew. You got to bear with me. I got. I have a whole list of dad jokes, so um, I'm going to cut myself off with one. Okay, so. Oh, geez. Well, you guys are going to have to start watching some Nick Cage movies together then. Absolutely. Well, maybe when they're a little older, some of those get pretty, uh, pretty violent, but definitely entertaining. And yeah, I, I mean, what is a good actor really? You know, is, is it someone who entertains you or is it someone who has more than one facial expression? <laughs> <laughs> So, all right. So, so a bad actor, that's, that's your first check to sort of see if your group here would qualify under uh, Reg D. Right, right. Yeah. And then the second one we mentioned already as well, and that's that uh, there would be no public advertising 
uh, under Rule 506B. Okay. So, uh, so the, the the sponsor would need to limit the offering to its network of substantive pre-existing relationships. Um, since public advertising and marketing is strictly prohibited, um, you know, some clients ask about whether or not they could make a public announcement about their fund or their capital raise. Uh, the short answer is no. Um, the SEC has some some guidance about how you know those types of activities could condition the market, so they're at risk of uh, of busting that rule. Are they are they able to even advertise, you know, to financial advisors, like let's say with you know, industry media or industry conferences that are not open to individual investors, but that are, you know, professional only or financial advisor only type events? Yeah, that's a good question um, because there's really no bright line. Um, And so the the general, uh, you know, my general guidance is, you know, consider this no public advertising rule a sliding scale. you know, the further away, you know, the, the more degrees of separation you have from your pre-existing network, um, you know, the higher the the risk of okay. violating that rule. Understood. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so then uh, the third element is that these uh, securities that are issued, there was referred to as restricted securities. And that means they're not freely transferable uh, when they're issued. Uh, in, in other words, investors must purchase for long-term investment and not a view to resell. But the, the sponsor then, they're not precluded from, you know, having some sort of liquidity or buyback or something program. It's just that more speaks to the intent. I mean, because I know some of these programs will have like very limited options for liquidity, but they're usually, you know, they're, they're not that desirable. Like usually there's some sort of penalty or, or fee. And, and so an investor wouldn't really go into it with that intention. You know, like if, if I'm investing in an ozone fund, for instance, in a QOF, uh, obviously I'm intending for that money to be locked up for that 10 year life cycle. Um, so are sponsors still able to offer, you know, limited liquidity or is, is that like a hard, hard rule there? Uh, no, no, it's not a hard rule. I mean, the general hard rule is, you know, one year lockup period. Okay. Um, and that's not just for securities purposes, but, you know, for, for tax planning as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there are different mechanisms that an issuer or a sponsor um, could offer to investors to provide liquidity if the investor needs it. Yeah. Cause I, I know a lot of alternatives and, you know, putting aside 506B versus 506C for a minute, but you know, kind of the idea of um, liquidity at intervals, like interval funds, for instance, or some of these different kinds of um, alternatives. They're not liquid alternatives, but they're not necessarily at that other extreme of, of like a totally illiquid 10, 10 to 20 year holding period type products. I've just seen more and more of those types of products gain traction in the marketplace where there's, you know, rather than being from one extreme to the other, it's kind of in the middle where there's a little bit of liquidity, um, but it's not totally liquid either. So I, that's why I was yeah. curious about that. Sure. No, no, I think, uh, I think to your point, um, you know, one of the advantages of, of offering an exit path for prospective investors is that, you know, it just gives them some assurance um, that, you know, if for whatever reason they needed liquidity, then they have a, a mechanism uh, to achieve it, notwithstanding that they decided to invest in alts you know, as opposed to publicly traded stock. Sure. Sure. Okay. So 
Let's see. Do we cover everything that that a sponsor their checklist under Reg D? Uh, just about. So uh, we mentioned um, this requirement for the investors to be accredited already. Uh, so I don't think we need to revisit that one item that I'll add to that discussion, though, is that under Rule 506B, the offering uh, securities may be sold to up to 35 non-accredited investors. The issue, though, with that approach is that it requires the issuer to deliver a higher standard of disclosures. Um, and that higher standard of disclosures in and of itself often makes um, you know, an enabling non-accredited investor entry into a 506B offering cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples would include audited financials, uh, annual or interim balance sheets, um, those types of disclosures. Um, and so then, why, so it's like, why, why would you want to invest in that overhead given that the non-accredited investors would, would be likely investing relatively small amounts of capital anyway, just financially doesn't make sense to do that. So practically, right. practically speaking, then, um, Pretty much no alternative sponsors take advantage of that, you know, potential ability. Uh, not if they're not if they're doing it right. Not if they're satisfying that higher standard of disclosures. Because again, it, it just gets cost prohibitive. The juice isn't quite worth the squeeze. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, if your intent is to enable participation by non-accredited investors, Reg D is probably not the best place for you. Um, instead, we may be having conversation about regulation crowdfunding. Uh, also known as uh, Reg CF. And so uh, just to briefly talk about Reg CF versus Reg D. Um, mm-hmm. So a sponsor, I, I guess in your experience, sponsors coming to you for your services, if they want to be able to directly sell to individual investors, they can do that under Reg D 506C, which would be accredited only, or they can go the crowdfunding route. Um, has that mix changed over, let's say, the past you know, several years is, is it's, is it's this kind of a constant proportion of folks going the crowdfunding route or um, have you seen that grow or shrink? Yeah. You know, I mentioned uh, at the beginning that the SEC has taken steps to lower barriers of entry and facilitate capital formation in the middle market. One of those changes that were made uh, was to reg CF. They increased the max offering amount from, about 1 million uh, to up to 5 million. Uh, so for sponsors that have a project that requires 5 million or less, uh, Reg CF, you know, if you're raising from non-accredited investors is part of your investment strategy, then Reg CF may, may be a good place to look. Uh, however, um, Reg CF has its own set of rules and hurdles that you would also need to navigate. Uh, one of them um, is, uh, is that you would need to conduct the offering through a crowdfunding uh, intermediary or a funding portal. Um, so if you're able to find um, a funding portal to partner with, um, then that would be your platform uh, to offer and sell to non-accredited investors uh, via Reg CF. Um, and then to answer your question, Andy, uh, because that increase from one to 5 million, um, I have seen an increase in Reg CF uh, offerings. Um, and, you know, for those crowdfunding uh platforms um, that base their business on Reg CF, they're, they're certainly, uh, they're certainly, you know, as busy as ever. Yeah. You know, and, and those are interesting to me because on the one hand, you know, I like the democratization aspect of that, 
But at, at, on the other hand, at a, at a certain point, um, a structure is just no longer efficient, right? Like, like I'm thinking, you know, there's probably a, a number. I don't know exactly what it is. Probably different for every sponsor, but it's probably like a, a worst, a worst possible amount of capital to raise. Where it's like, it's it's enough that I have to, you know, do all of these things for securities law and structure my entity in a certain way. Uh, but it's not enough to give me economy of scale to, you know, cause like some of these things to, to, as a sponsor uh, or at the offering level are, are going to be more or less fixed costs, right. Um, in terms of, you know, legal assistance and, and paperwork and, you know, regulatory stuff. And, and then also just normal overhead of any business. And then other things are going to be variable costs. And so I, I don't know, personally, I kind of question, uh, you know, if you, if you have a real estate asset that's, I don't know, a $4 million asset with a $2 million equity raise and you fractionalize it for a hundred different investors, that's so much overhead, you know, for this one asset that on the other side of the alternatives world, it, it wouldn't even be fractionalized. It would just be like a single owner asset. Do you have any thoughts on that? On sort of yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Uh, great point, Andy. I mean, you know, the larger the number of your investors, the greater your administrative burden. Um, you know, so if you're organized as a, you know, a multi-member LLC with a partnership election or a limited partnership, you know, you're looking at a hundred plus schedule K-1s um, that you got to prepare and deliver. Um, so certainly, you know, administrative burden um, is, uh, is part of the, the equation as well. Are there any, you know, practices that a sponsor can take you know, when they're thinking about setting up entities or, or just sort of at that strategy level to, to minimize that administrative burden to, to, you know, you know, beyond even just the liability, but just to sort of minimize the, the man hours and cost sure. the life cycle of their fund. Yeah, absolutely. You know, best practices would include developing your uh, business plan uh, before you start designing your offering. Um, because you need to know how much you need to raise, you know, in, in order to capitalize that plan. And so, you know, if you've got that figure, um, you know, you can then, you know, try to negotiate um, with the, who you would consider a strategic lead investor. Um, someone that you can get in the door, you know, right away. This would be someone that you already have a pre-existing relationship with. Um, but if you can do that, then, you know, it certainly would make closing the remaining amount of your offering, uh, you know, much less uh, burdensome if, if you've already got some cash in the door and, and can have keep that momentum going with additional uh, prospective investors. Start with the ball in the 50 yard line, right? Not from you got it. <laughs> you got it. What, what about on the marketing side? I mean, I know that, you know, you're, you're on the legal and, and liability side, but you know, you, you work with a lot of different sponsors, you know, what are sponsors doing to sort of tee up, you know, the job of raising capital, the sales and marketing that entails, what are, what are some things they can do early on at that strategy level, you know, at the planning level to make those things easier and, and also to where, you know, they have less legal headaches. Can I say legal headaches later in, in the sales process? Yeah, right. No, I think your question is, uh, you know, how do I make an, an, an ounce of prevention, you know, worth a pound of remedy? Yes. Uh, and the answer is, you know, again, making sure that you've developed your business plan up front. 
um, you know, in, in bonus points, if you have a prospective uh, strategic lead investor that you can bounce that off of. Because again, you know, if that lead investor uh, finds your offering appealing enough for them to participate in, uh, then it's going to make it a lot easier for you to, to sell subsequent investors uh, on your offering as well. Understood. So, so let's talk a little bit about the documents associated with an offering. Um, you know, realistically, are you finding that, and I know you work with investors as well, right? Actually, why don't we start with that? Um, some of your clients are coming to you from the investor side. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, so, you know, these are going to be uh, folks who were presented, um, you know, with maybe a pitch deck or a business plan uh, by somebody that they know uh, because, you know, they have deep pockets and, you know, maybe they are known in the community for making private equity investments. Um, so if they have, um, you know, if they're considering participation in an equity offering, um, then, uh, you know, my first piece of advice is, you know, well, you know, ask for the offering documents, mm-hmm. um, because a pitch deck may look great, but you don't really know what's legally enforceable until you reviewed, uh, the offering documents, which would include a private placement memorandum, um, subscription agreement, uh, an operating agreement or a limited partnership agreement, uh, in the case of, of an LP. Um, so there's no, you know, predefined set of, you know, what constitute offering documents, but what we're looking for are the legal instruments that are enforceable. And so in your view that, you know, due diligence, let's actually get into due diligence for a sec here. You have the due diligence on the project level, which that's more financial. That takes more of someone with financial, uh, real estate experience. We're talking to real estate all, you know, to, you know, look into the model and, and kind of check those financial and business assumptions. And then there's also that legal end of going through the offering docs, the the PPM, the subscription agreement. Uh, are you know, if if I'm an investor, you know, is, is there? I guess in your mind, does every accredited investor need to have like a structured due diligence process, or is this is this more important when we're talking? you know, LPs who are making seven figure investments, because I mean, realistically, most accredited investors are not reading, you know, an entire PPM or subscription agreement, nor are they, you know, employing um, someone like yourself, you know, to, to read through them for them. Mm -hmm. And realistically, if they're working through an advisor, you know, realistically, the advisor probably doesn't have the time to read every single word in a PPM. You know, so kind of knowing, you know, knowing the realism of, of, of that, would you would you would you say that it doesn't really matter what amount of capital you're investing? You basically need to go go through all of those, you know, line yeah, by hundred percent. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much or how little you're investing into a private offering. Uh, you need to make an informed investment decision. Uh, is the bottom line, mm-hmm. um, or, or at least you know that would be my advice to a client. Um, and I think most clients would agree, um, you know, there, there are some, um, you know, there might be some exceptions if you just, if you're investing in the person and not the business plan, um, you know, I typically see that being the case for, um, you know, serial entrepreneurs and venture capital deals. But I mean, look, you know, for a lot of folks, um, participating in alts, uh, this is your cash, right? So nobody's going to care about your cash more than you do. 
Um, and the way to protect your investment is, um, you know, is by conducting your due diligence up front, make, making sure that you understand what it is you're buying. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, speaking as an LP, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's, uh, it's like homework. Uh, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not fun, but there's going to be a long-term payoff if you do your homework and, you know, obviously the, the investment world is no different, but it, it, it truly is amazing to me though, when in the investment research and selection process, you know, a lot of investors follow their passion and that's great. But then when it comes to that, you know, the last mile or switching analogies, you know, you, you get the ball down to the two yard line. And then they, they sort of just skip over that process and they just say, Hey, look, send me the DocuSign and they sign and, uh, mm-hmm. and move forward. So I, I want to shift gears. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, I guess startup sponsors or sponsors with, you know, smaller offering, you know, I say smaller, you know, all in context of some of the largest sponsors and alternatives, um, you know, managing billions, um, let's talk about the bigger players in the alternative space. Um, you know, that, you know, the, the, the sponsors that, you know, have different products and are managing, you know, half a billion, a billion or more in equity. Um, what are the kinds of things that they're dif- doing to differentiate themselves or, you know, you know, you don't have to name any names, but you know, what is it that some of those players that are doing really well and having a lot of success, uh, what are they doing to differentiate themselves? Yeah. You know, I, I guess it depends on, on how you measure success. Um, you know, if you measure it in terms of assets under management, uh, you know, I think a big part of it is the relationships um, that you've developed over the course of a career. Uh, so your investors aren't going to be, you know, um, you know, accredited investors that, um, you know, that are individuals or, um you know, high net worth people uh, in your local community. These are going to be institutional investors, mm-hmm. um, pension funds, uh, endowments, um, et cetera. Um, and, um, and, and these are going to be, uh, you know, some of the most uh, demanding uh, investors are going to scrutinize your deals. Um, and for good reason, uh, because they're on their part, managing a lot of, uh, a lot of cash themselves um, and, and uh, you know, placing it with you, um, as a sponsor. Um, so I would say number one, um, you know, it's establishing that network, um, of institutional investors and, and it takes a lot of time, um, because, you know, a lot of their decision-making is going to be on your past performance, whether or not you have had a successful track record and, you know, track record is something that takes, you know, decades, uh, to develop. Um, but if your metric is, you know, return on investment, uh, then it may be a project in your local town, in your own city. Um, it may be finding, a, you know, an emerging uh, real estate developer uh, or an emerging entrepreneur uh, who's got a great business idea uh, that will disrupt uh, an industry and finding that, uh, finding that relationship um, and investing into it early. Um, so there are, you know, there are a range of, uh, of approaches, uh, that you can take to find success in this space. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's very true about the track record by definition, a track record can't be built overnight, right? It, it, it's going to take time. Um, you know, and on that note, I wanted to ask, cause I, you know, I look at, at someone like you and what you do, 
really it's a little bit of a leading indicator, like the things you see, you know, because you're talking with sponsors in the planning stages before they actually launch a new private placement offering. So a little bit of a leading indicator of, of where things are going. So, you know, as we enter the second half of 2022 or even thinking ahead to 2023 and beyond, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Um, you know, it, this could be in terms of sectors that you think are, are likely to grow or in terms of different wrappers, um, you know, that you see a lot of interest in. But, you know, take out your crystal ball and, and make us a couple of predictions, Andrew. Uh, sure. Yeah. So. You know, the the, uh, the investor economy in uh, July 22 is, is very different than the investor economy in, in January of 22. Sure. Uh, so uh, if you would have asked me, you know, seven months ago, I probably would have had a very different answer. Uh, but, you know, what I'm seeing now is, you know, uh, you know, investors are are looking for yield. Right. And they're n- not getting it in, in stocks. Uh, they are uh, not getting it in, in crypto assets. Um, so they're looking for, uh, for real estate. Um, and, um, so, uh, you know, I'm seeing, uh, you know, kind of a surge in, um, you know, real estate development projects, multi-asset funds, um, primarily being driven by taxpayers, uh, who are, uh, looking to optimize, uh, tax yield along with their return on investment. So, you know, whether it's through a qualified opportunity fund, uh, as you mentioned, investing into to opportunity zone property and getting those special federal income tax incentives, uh, or investing into non-opportunity zone property and still getting the benefit of, um, you know, bonus depreciation and pass-through tax losses. Um, that, uh, you know, I would say that that is, uh, if there's a trend, um, you know, that's uh, that's where I see it. Now, you can ask me again in six months. I may have a completely different answer for you. Well, yeah, you know, I I mean, you touched on triple net returns. I mean, that's a huge theme, honestly, of our show here at the Alternative Investment Podcast. I mean, when you're talking about high net worth investors, very high net worth, you know, family offices, almost by definition, you have to, you know, take, you know, tax advantage investing into account. Obviously, that can change a little bit for institutionals. Um, you know, depending on if they're a not-for-profit, you know, that consideration is not as important. Um, but I think you're exactly right. Investors are looking for yield. Um, and we're seeing, you know, negative real yields after uh, inflation in all sorts of asset classes. So it's, I don't know if it's, <laughs> would you even call it a choice? It's almost, it's just investors are, are forced to look for yield. So in terms of, of wrappers, is there anything then beyond um, qualified opportunity funds that, that you think could be, you know, the next big thing? Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I'm seeing a lot of interesting things in, um, you know, in, in financial technology, um, in, uh, in prop tech uh, as well. Um, Decentralized autonomous uh, organizations. I've been having uh, conversations. Uh, seems like more and more uh, with with clients about how to use DAOs um, to launch a Web three strategy uh, for a, a new business or pre existing business. Um, so that's been super interesting as well. Um, and you know, I don't know if that's 
uh, something you spent uh, any uh, any amount of time in, Andy. But um, you know, the the world of DAOs and their interface with making Web three a reality. Um, if, if you're interested in emerging uh, um, landscapes, uh, that might be one where where you could spend some time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, fintech is just is fascinating, and um, it's interesting because as we've talked about today, you know, on the regulatory side, the trend has been towards opening things up to more and more investors, right? Whether it's crowdfunding or five hundred six C under Reg D, but then you also have that technological side, which is moving independently of regulators in many cases, but um, following that same path of, you know, democratizing things a little bit, but um, probably a little less predictable than the regulatory side of things, but nevertheless, very interesting. So, so Andrew, I know we're running short on time, uh, but I wanted to ask where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about you and all the services that you offer for investors and sponsors? Sure. You can find me online or email me at uh, adalp at keglebrown.com. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, Andy, uh, for uh, any of your listeners, um, I'm, I'd be happy uh, to provide a, a scope of work proposal um, together with an estimate of legal fees. I can do this in as little as 30 minutes and uh, we can do that off the clock. Absolutely. We'll be sure to note that and link that in the show notes. And I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, for our listeners, if you want links to everything we mentioned, including a link to that special offer from Andrew, be sure to go to our show notes page at altsdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening platform. So you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Andrew, thanks again for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. Go Bucks. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 